We already know from analysis of what governments have put forward, what they're likely to put forward, that it's nowhere near enough to get where we need to be on addressing climate change. We've got workers who are actually looking out their windows, who used to have jobs in manufacturing for the offshore sector, who are looking at the sea and seeing windmills and wind turbines that were produced at the other side of the world. In Lancaster, I thought I hit the lottery when fellows falling off of me a job because my entire adult life, it was near impossible to get into Kellogg's. And now all of a sudden, anyone and their brother walk in the door and they don't stay. The problem when it comes to organized labor is a problem that I always analogize by telling the story about the guy that jumped off the Empire State Building. And as he fell past the 50th floor, he was overheard saying, so far, so good. And, and therein lies the problem. And we know you can do it. You can be the champion because you have this social mission. And you've been doing a lot for animal welfare and the environmental issues, but you're not doing anything for the human factor and the people that are milking the cow. I can look at it to help myself out is working at DirecTV. I consider that like my associates in electrical doing inside wiring, that's like my bachelor's. And now that I'm getting into the line trade, I'm like, okay, this is my master's program. And so here's Henry Ford reaping all the benefit of their labor, and he's not really doing much in the way of taxes or contributions to their welfare, because at the end of the day, they all take the train back to Detroit. And so this is not lost on these people. And when they march, they're met by first the police, which is more or less owned and operated by the Ford company. And then they're met by Henry Ford's secret police force, the Ford Service Department. I've had actors come into the studio for the first time after doing a lot of commercial work and sit down and say, chapter one, and you're like, okay, maybe we should tone it back a little bit. <laughs> this initial scene is death. There's a death in this scene. Like it starts off, someone leaving a funeral. So maybe bring it back a little, think about what it is, the intimacy of what you're reading. Hi there, I'm your host, Mel Smith from the Labor Radio Podcast Network, a group of over 130 shows from all over the globe, spanning a large range of topics. Welcome to this week's episode of Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. We have eight great segments picked out for you today. And we're going to begin in Scotland with the 2021 United Nations Climate Change Conference or COP26. First, we hear from Radio Labour, where the director of the International Trade Union Confederation's Just Transition Center, Samantha Smith, outlines Labour's goals at the conference. Next, General Secretary of the Scottish Trades Union Congress, Roz Foyer, discusses the intersection of the decarbonizing industry and labour in Scotland on reinventing solidarity. Then, we cross back over the pond and hear from two BCTGM members from Kellogg's about how the company has become a quote-unquote shit show, their words, not mine, on the AFL-CIO's State of the Union's podcast. After that, Labor Wave Radio features a 2018 interview with Ben Fletcher Jr. on the Janus versus AFSCME decision that is as relevant today as it was then. On the For a Better World podcast, Marita Canedo from Migrant Justice speaks about the Milk with Dignity program that empowers dairy workers in Vermont and their historic contract with Ben & Jerry's. Dijon Greer joins the Powerline podcast where he touches on his own experience as a black journeyman lineman and the importance of diversity in the trades. On Tales from the Ruther Library, Ryan Pentengill talks about his recent book on how the Communist Party and labor activists worked together in post-World War II Detroit to advocate for civil rights, affordable housing, and more. Ever thought you had what it takes to narrate an audiobook? Find out what that entails on SAG-AFTRA's podcast, where several successful narrators explain how to break into the industry and their own process. Once again, this is Mel Smith, and here's our show. This is Solidarity News on Radio Labor. Hello, I'm Mark Boulanger. It's really urgent to get good jobs and clean energy and to do it now. That is Samantha Smith, the director of the Just Transition Center. The center was established in 2016 by the International Trade Union Confederation. The ITUC is the organization which represents national union centers such as the Ghana Trades Union Congress and the AFL-CIO in the United States. 
It established the Just Transition Center to bring together workers and their unions, businesses and governments, communities and civil society organizations to ensure that labor is represented as the world attempts to transition to a low-carbon world. I talked to Ms. Smith just before a major UN climate change conference was about to start. COP26 will be held in Glasgow October 31st to November 12th, 2021. I asked Ms. Smith to describe Labour's goals for the conference. Our goals for the climate negotiations are, first and foremost, that we want much more urgent climate action from governments, along with financing to back it up. And in particular, we want all countries to commit to just transition, which means that we want them not only to say how much they're going to reduce climate emissions, but also to do that with plans for workers and for decent jobs. What is a just transition? A just transition is an idea that comes from our our movement, the labor movement. So it comes out of North American unions and some of their partners a couple of decades ago. And it's basically the idea that when you're trying to address a big problem like climate change, that you can do it in two ways. You can do it in a top-down, unjust way that makes people lose their jobs, or you can do it in a process with workers and our unions, with employers, sometimes with governments, where you basically negotiate what's going to happen to people's jobs at a workplace level, at a company level, at a national level, and even at a sectoral level. And instead of looking at this just as an exercise to cut emissions, you look at it as an exercise to make sure that everybody has social protection in this time of big transition, that the content of jobs may change, but jobs aren't going to get worse, and they might even get better, and that new jobs that are going to be created aren't going to be a bunch of sort of union-busting new entrants, but actually that the new jobs are going to be good jobs. What can unions and their members do to support a just transition? We are already doing it. So I am, I have to say that uh, over the last five years, which is about how long ITUC has had a just transition center, um, I personally have gotten to see so many of the national federations and unions at all different levels getting active on this issue. And what, what unions are doing is, One, they're um, pushing governments to deliver what I mentioned at the climate negotiations, so to deliver a process with unions at the table that's going to produce decent jobs and social protection while it brings down emissions. Um, So that's a sort of big national policy level. At the sector level, for example, we're seeing the industrial unions in Europe having a massive campaign across Europe for a just transition for workers. They're campaigning through collective bargaining and also through national and European level policy work to get good jobs for workers. In South Africa, the unions collectively bargained for a national commission on just transition and climate change, and they're now negotiating at the national level a framework agreement on just transition. Um, Yeah, I can go on and on, but there's really a lot happening. And in a lot of countries, including countries like Brazil, where our comrades at CUT Brazil have successfully negotiated with their affiliates a just transition process at the state level involving employers and government and the energy sector. You were one of the labor movement's leaders on the issue of climate change. Are you optimistic or pessimistic about the results of COP26, the UN Climate Change Conference? Well, first of all, I wouldn't say I'm a leader. I would say I'm a busy and enthusiastic supporter of worker leaders and our elected leaders. But in terms of, you know, am I optimistic or pessimistic? I would say I am pessimistic because, on the other hand, there have been a couple of developments that are pretty good. So, for example, there's a big push on just transition from some governments. We even see some employers kind of grudgingly understanding that this is a process they need to engage in with organized labor. 
Um, and we see even countries like the United States with the big, you know, legislation that's pending in Congress right now and the budgets, that there's a new approach from some governments where they're really listening to labor and they're really thinking about and trying to get action on climate that's going to create good jobs for people. So this COP, you know, might be kind of enough. But the bigger picture is that we're making progress on some of our issues and we're just going to need to keep fighting. So the struggle continues. I think on all issues, including this one. But uh, the thing that is concerning, of course, is that as we try to recover from COVID-19 and we're not done with the pandemic, what we're seeing is that on the one hand, lots of our members are getting back to work in the energy sector and we always should be happy about that. On the other hand, companies and governments haven't invested near enough in getting us to clean and affordable and secure energy systems. And so we're seeing both an energy crisis and also emissions going up. It's really urgent to get good jobs and clean energy and to do it now. Welcome to Reinventing Solidarity, a podcast of the journal New Labor Forum and the School of Labor and Urban Studies at the City University of New York. My name is Paula Finn, podcast host and editor of New Labor Forum. This episode, New Labor Forum columnist Sean Sweeney speaks with Roz Foyer, General Secretary of the Scottish Trades Union Congress. Let's turn to Sean Sweeney and Roz Foyer now. When I was in Glasgow two years ago, there was a fair amount of cynicism about the the renewable sector in particular, the, the broken promises of the Scottish government, and for that matter, the British government, about delivering tens of thousands of jobs in, say, for example, the offshore wind sector. I asked the question because we've, in Trade Unions for Energy Democracy, tried to draw attention to the problems of the sort of subsidies for everyone regime where massive amounts of public money gets transferred into private hands and private investors, all in the name of transitioning to a low carbon economy. So any any thoughts on the struggles there? Because we've yeah. been following very closely, but for our listeners and viewers, I think it would be really interesting. Yeah, no, absolutely, Sean. There's a real story to tell there. Scotland actually is one of the world leading countries in terms of renewable energy. And Scotland is has a has a background in producing oil as well, the North Sea oil reserves that we have. So we have a big workforce who are in, you know, offshore oil and gas and who are up for a just transition, but have high levels of scepticism because we were promised for the last 20 years that we would become the Saudi Arabia of renewables. And what has happened is that we have indeed seen the development of mass offshore wind farms. But the problem is that £5 billion worth of contracts have been given out to the other side of the world to produce and manufacture those offshore wind farms when you know, a, a proper long-term plan of investment should have gone into companies, indigenous companies here in Scotland that needed that transition from producing oil platforms to producing offshore wind platforms and and that was sadly failing we've got workers who are actually looking out their windows who used to have jobs in manufacturing for the offshore sector who are looking at the sea and seeing windmills and wind turbines that were produced at the other side of the world and I think it's been a real failure real proper industrial planning and having a proper industrial strategy to make sure that we're creating local supply chains to to power this new industry. And we've seen asset strippers take apart the one and only wind turbine producer in the UK at Campbelltown as well. So we've lost some of the key areas that could have contributed to that industry. And we've just missed out on another massive potential investment from the UK government on that front. So you're absolutely right to say that our workers and our energy industry have yet to be convinced there is an alternative. They told us there'd be 20,000 jobs and we can't find more than about 2,000 jobs at the moment. 
in that renewables industry. So much work to be done there to show our workforce that there's a just transition waiting for their skills. And I think it's a lesson for the international trade union movement and for the climate movement that unless we build jobs and supply chains locally, the whole project of decarbonisation is in danger. I think the climate crisis and the general crisis of the political economy right now, it raises questions about trade union internationalism because many for many years it was either we supported a strike or a specific struggle here and there or we were against the repression or harassment of trade unionists. But now we need a more ongoing platform of solidarity just based on, I think, more programmatic commitments to get this vision we have that we're beginning to develop about public ownership and a a pro-public transition into the mix. And, And because that's as internationalist as anything else, in my view. There's a lot of work for us to do because we don't think we can rely on the politicians to change things. It is going to take people power and we're going to have to get angry and make demands and really start to push the politicians out of their comfort zone if we're going to get the progress we need on the whole climate agenda and on the social justice agenda that we really want to see out of this. Thank you on behalf of the School of Labour and Urban Studies and Reinventing Solidarity. And we're going to get this message out. Thanks, Ros. This is State of the Unions. I'm Tim Schlittner. And I'm Carolyn Bob. We are very honored to be joined today by two very special guests, members of BCTGM, the Bakery Workers Union, who are on strike at Kellogg's, Heather Green of Battle Creek, Michigan, a member of BCTGM Local 3G, and Andy Johnson of Lancaster, Pennsylvania, a member of BCTGM Local 374G. Heather, Andy, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having us. Heather, I'm going to start with you. Can you give listeners a sense of why you're on strike, what this moment means to you, and what you hope is a fair resolution? We are on strike because as a whole, our whole referring to the 1,400 of us, We all just, we've had enough. Our company that we work for, Kellogg's, in the past has asked for concessions. During lean times, we've given and we've given. We're at a point now where the company forward-facing talks about how well they're doing, the profits that they're making, and at the very same time, needs to increase those profits at our expense. They want to create this division between what they call legacy and uh, transitional employees so that there will never be another full path to full benefits and full wages like I enjoy now and that Andy does now. It's an awful, disgusting thing that any company would insist upon the devaluation of their workforce. And that was enough. That was enough for us to say that is a step too far. That's over the line. There is no reason why these guys that work next to us today, the ones that will work next to us 10 years from now, should receive anything other than what we receive today. How did the company change during the pandemic? And how did you feel about the safety precautions? We just heard from Andy that he most likely contracted COVID from work. Let's face it, with COVID, they did the best that they could with the knowledge that they had at the beginning. We were required to wear masks when the CDC mandated, but we still went to work and worked side by side with each other every day, seven days a week, 12 and 16 hours. It was inevitable that COVID was going to go through the plants. There was no safety that they could have enacted enough to stop it. But the pat on the back, it felt good that we went to work and, you know, we had lunch every Friday or an ice cream social or uh, giveaways. Like I said, it felt good. But then to ask to be made whole in 2020 and for them to tell us that we were absolutely nothing, there was no way they were going to do it. And we agreed to this and we had to accept it. Hero to zero. And it was just an awful feeling. The question originated regarding COVID and they absolutely exploited it. 
not hiring in the first place. So dealing with COVID vacancies, people that were out, illnesses, quarantine, they staffed that shortage with forced overtime. And I firmly believe it was by design. They wanted an exhausted membership and they wanted a very divided membership. And what they got was the exact opposite. We are fired up and we are united. You know, this has to stop. And you talk about not hiring, Heather. It wasn't even the not hiring. It's when they hired, the retention was absolutely ridiculous within the transitional ranks. You had a class of seven or eight people starting. And by the end of the week of orientation, you were down to three or four people left out of that class because they said, forget it. I'm not working for $19 an hour and working these ridiculous conditions. That's absolutely insane. You go back to before the two-tier system, and they had thousands of applicants for two and three spots. You yes. In Lancaster, yes. I thought I hit the lottery when Kellogg's called and offered me a job because my entire adult life, it was near impossible to get into Kellogg's. You hoped and prayed that you did well enough in that interview. And now all of a sudden, anyone in their brother can walk in the door, and they don't stay. And I don't blame them for not staying for $19 an hour. It's a total shift now. People used to come to work at Kellogg's and that was their career. Not just simply because they were there for 20 or 30 years, but because they could walk out onto the floor and they could tell you what was wrong with the food, with the process, with a packing line, with a case packer, just by their senses, what they could smell, what they could hear. And that's what made them so very good at their careers. And because they have adulterated how they want to pay and benefit people, they get applicants that are looking at it as, oh, it's just their next job. They're not invested. They're not investing in their positions, in our product, or in our successes. It's just a job to them. And they can't keep help. He's absolutely right about that. They can't get applicants either because it's like the cat's out of the bag. Now, everybody's talking about it. Everybody knows that this is not your grandmother's Kellogg. Yeah, she's right. Our last job fair in Lancaster, they had 12 people show up for it. 12 people for a job fair that was advertised for three weeks. And it's not because people aren't out of work. It's because no one wants to go to the shit show that Kellogg's has made themselves into. Thank you both so much for sharing some of your time with us today. We're really, really proud and inspired. And it was a great discussion. Thank you, Jen. Thank you, Carolyn. All right. Stand strong. Thank you so much. Labor Wave Radio is an independent podcast producing bi-weekly content that discusses work and labor organizing from an anti-capitalist perspective. You're about to listen to a re-release with a conversation we did with Bill Fletcher Jr. on the State of Unions after the Janus versus AFSCME decision back in 2018. Now, for folks that might not be familiar, Janus versus AFSCME was a decision made by the Supreme Court which rendered it illegal for public sector unions to collect what are called agency fees, refer to money collected for the cost of representation and bargaining among workers included in the unit of a public sector union. So Bill Fletcher Jr. and I talked about how much did that decision impact unions negatively or positively, and where were the prospects moving forward? We just had the Janus versus AFNI decision. A lot of people predicted that it was going to destroy public sector unions. But actually, it looks like membership is holding and in some places even increasing. Is that an optical illusion or do you think that we're actually stronger than we thought? I think that it's analogous to the Y2K situation where up till the year 2000, there was a growing panic about what will happen in the year 2000. And so what you had is a lot of IT firms, governments, et cetera taking preventative measures that ultimately meant that Y2K was nothing. So I think that what happened in anticipation first of Friedrichs and then Janus is that a number of unions, not all for sure, began to take steps to address the problem of their laziness, which was their 
over-reliance on agency shop. And unions like the AFT, American Federation of Teachers and Service Employees International Union, AFSCME, and others made some significant changes. I think that's really good and very important, but it's not enough. Because what we have to understand is that it's great that we stopped a blowout. But what we have to understand is that there are going to be new workers coming in to our workplaces. And if the proper work is not done with them, when they come in or within a few months of their entry, they will be lost. Because, and, and we have to understand it's, a, it's in a context where union membership has dropped to what, 11% of the workforce. So many workers have no knowledge of unions. So unions can't rest comfortably or easy with the situation. There has to be an immense amount of education, but I would argue that there needs to be more than that, which goes to the issue of vision. So mentioning why preparation was done in a lot of mm -hmm. places to prevent Janice from being a catastrophe. Right. Since the catastrophe didn't happen, do you think organized labor is going to wake up? Or do you think that this is just going to be like the walking business model will continue to move on? I would say the smart money will say that most unions will pop the cork and cry victory and will become complacent once again. That's where I, th I think the smart money is. Now, having said that, I think that there are a number of unions and local unions that realize that something different has to be done. So I think that the responses are going to be very uneven. The problem when it comes to organized labor is a problem that I always analogize by telling the story about the guy that jumped off the Empire State Building. And as he fell past the 50th floor, he was overheard saying, so far, so good. And, and therein lies the problem that, you know, that you have a lot of these unions that unless they've completely cracked, they continue to think it's not that bad. It's analogous to the larger problem we have in the Trump era, where people have been saying it's bad, but it could be worse. And that's right, it could be worse. We could all be in concentration camps. That's absolutely the case. But that ends up becoming a way of becoming, once again, complacent. So I, I actually do worry. Uh, I'm very concerned about this. And I think that there is a need for continued urgency. Yeah, I really appreciate your time. Your insight's very brilliant. And it was a pleasure talking to you on Labor Wave. Sure, it was my pleasure. I'm Dana Geffner, and you're listening to For a Better World, where we unpack the systems, pathways, and labor conflicts that underpin everything around us. In this episode, Fairwell Project's campaign manager, Anna Canning, talks to Marita Canedo, an organizer with Migrant Justice. They call their Milk with Dignity program a new day for human rights and dairy. My name is Marita Canedo. I'm originally from Bolivia and I'm part of Migrant Justice in Vermont. We are a grassroots organization of dairy farm workers and we fight to empower and create the voice of the community. One of their very first campaigns was for access to transportation, the basic freedom of mobility. You know, living in a rural state, uh, the problem to have access to food, going to the doctor, knowing that you have a family member maybe five miles away and you cannot, there is no way to get there, there is no public transportation. Through their organizing, Migrant Justice won the right for people to get driver's licenses in Vermont, regardless of immigration status. It had changed the life of people in the state, but also with that had to come something about stopping the police collaborating with immigration enforcement. Because what was happening is that passengers in a car will be taken into detention just by being immigrants, not speaking the language or how do they look. And we had to stop that because when people are driving just for a typical 
like traffic stop, they could be put in, into um, deportation procedures. Once again, Migrant Justice joined forces with human rights advocates in Vermont. The result? A mandate for local law enforcement to adopt a fair and impartial policing policy. And that means that the police cannot act as immigration enforcement. They have no reason to collaborate with uh, Border Patrol. Or, and also that has been a big change for the community to feel safer driving around and really having more access to any bare need that they have. Workers organizing with migrant justice had built up their power and changed state laws. But they were still living in cramped, drafty trailers still working long, dangerous hours with little time for rest. So we were trying to figure out a way and a model to solve this. And that's how, from all the way up in Vermont, they connected with an organization formed by farm workers in the tomato fields of Florida. Inspired by their model, organizers of migrant justice brought the key message back to the barns of Vermont. They went on to build a similar program based on the central tenant. Workers are the leaders of the change. They are the experts. They know what is needed. They called this worker-led program Milk with Dignity. If I'm a worker under the Milk with Dignity program and something happens, I know I can freely call the support line because I'm protected from retaliation. Uh, that's a big important part of the program. People can call, comply, make suggestions, and they cannot be uh, fire or punish for it. So that builds the trust for people. If I'm a worker under the cognitive program, I know I have access to talk to the council and the investigators, or I, if I feel confident enough to talk to my manager or my employer, I can do it knowing that there is not going to be retaliation. Since migrant justice started, we had Ben and Jerry's at home. They are here in Vermont. So we always been in talks with them about how they should be responsible for the farm workers in bringing the cream to their ice cream. And we know you can do it. You can be the champion because you have this social mission. And you've been doing a lot for animal welfare and the environmental issues, but you're not doing anything for the human factor and the people that are milking the cows. Uh, so we had long conversations until we decided to launch a public campaign. And it was more than two years in a public campaign with actions and finally they realized, okay, we need to sit with the farm workers and talk to them. And it was a very historic moment. October 3rd or 2017, Benninger signed the agreement. And what is really, I know, empowering for our community is the first time uh, in history that a CEO signed an agreement with dairy farm workers. So that shows how is the collective power, collective solutions, and really uh, the workers led on this amazing progress. Since 2017, when Ben and Jerry signed on to the program, conditions have changed for farm workers. People can take time and rest. There are more families now in farms, so people can take time with their kids. Workers have been organizing in farms under the program to ask for more things, maybe more wages, without fear of retaliation, housing improvements, and then a uh, very important thing, sexual harassment is something that wasn't talked too much. But we have cases where um, for years there were people harassing women in a farm. Under the program, finally, these women felt empowered enough to talk to the manager. That person was fired immediately for harassing women. So it was really powerful to see that we have cases like that comparing with farms outside of the program where this doesn't happen. You've been listening to For a Better World, a podcast by Fair World Project. Thank you for listening. What's up, guys? My name is Ryan Lucas. I'm the founder and host of Powerline Podcast. Welcome to the show again today. Thanks for joining in. Thanks for hanging out with me. All right, today's guest is Dijon Greer. Dijon has an awesome story of persistence and perseverance. Our conversation hits so many great topics, such as how to start with a union, becoming an inside wireman in order to reach your dream of becoming a lineman. And we also talk a lot about diversity in the trades. Dijon, thank you for taking the time out of your day to sit down and record with me on Powerline Podcast. Welcome to the show. I'm excited for this conversation yeah, and welcome. Yeah, man. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Cool. 
You live in, in Southern California now? Yep, still here. How did you find out about trades and what was like a motivation to even start thinking about trades and then even the trades that you went into? So my, yeah, my, my family, they're not, I guess you could consider like my dad's side of the family. They're very white collar, very mm -hmm. about go to college, get your degree. And my dad and I, we kind of, we didn't really fit that mold. I had an uncle who was actually a carpenter and he got me into, he got me into the plumber pipe fitter union. So he helped me, told me about that. He had a really good buddy that was, that was in the union, talked to me about it. So I worked, I became, I worked as far as becoming a third year apprentice and then work just slowed up really bad to the point where I sat on the books for about a year. Wow. And yeah. So once that happened, I just said, you know what? I'm over this. I can't do union. It's it's not for me. I was young too. I was only 20 years old. Yeah. And so I kind of steered clear from the trades for a little bit. I, I got a job at, at direct TV installing satellite dishes. And then I had another uncle family friend who's an inside wireman for local 11 out here in LA. And he'd been trying to get me to join local 11 for a while. And I kept telling him, no, man, I don't trust the union. I don't trust it. I'm not going to work and this and that. And he was like, I'm telling you, you're not going to sit. So after talking it over with my wife and uh, I finally decided to, to go down there, put my application in, it took about eight months for me to get in. And I've been in ever since. So yeah, it's good I kind of looked at it to help myself out is working at direct TV. I did like the, I consider that like my associates in electrical doing inside wiremen. That's like my bachelor's. And now that I'm getting into the line trade, I'm like, okay, this is my master's program. And once I got this, then I'm good. Good to go. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good way to look at it. Actually. I like that. Yeah. It just, it helps me sleep better. <laughs> Cause I've been in the, doing two apprentices. It, it's definitely, uh, definitely hard to commit to getting out of one apprenticeship and then literally jumping straight in to another one. Like I'll journey out july of 22 and i'll be starting the lion trade apprenticeship probably about august of 22. so nice. i got i'll have that that wireman that journeyman wireman ticket that i've been trying to get for five years for about a month and then it's gonna switch over to groundman so yeah. i gotta frame you, it you never lose it, it though stuff. you never lose it and it only benefits you talk about before you get into the uh line work portion and becoming a lineman talk a little bit more about the work as an inside wireman what pros cons what you like about it what you'd recommend that sort of thing yeah so we man we touch a little bit of, of everything i've worked on jobs to where all we're doing is swapping out receptacles changing out lights light fixtures just because one one tenant is moving out of a building and another tenant is moving in and they just, they want different lights, all that good stuff, all the way to working at the new uh, Rams football stadium, SoFi Stadium. And we did, the company I was with, we did all the underground four or five inch pipe to run for the utility for Edison out here. So we pretty much powered all of the parking lots, all the transformers, everything that they put out there. We did all of the all the restrooms, there's this huge, they have these two lakes out there, these man-made lakes. And we put all the electrical for their water pumps. And so you, you get to touch a little bit of everything. Then we had the electricians that were actually working inside the stadium and they're on boom lifts that are 150 feet up in the air. So it, you get to do pretty much anything you could think of to working inside, outside, underground, above ground, to just putting in light switches. And so it's, that's what's so cool about it is you can literally do a little bit of everything. Cool. Decent for family life too. It seems yeah, it's those seem like bigger projects. So you show up like you yeah. got a place to show up. That's consistent for a while and right. almost get in a bit of a routine and that sort of thing too. Cool buddy. I really appreciate yeah. your time. Thank you for doing this. Thank you for being so open and yeah. Thanks a lot, buddy. I appreciate it, man. Thank you for having me. It really means a lot. Storm is coming, but I'm prepared. 
Hello, and welcome to another Tales from the Ruther Library, a podcast coming to you from the Walter P. Ruther Library on the campus of Wayne State University. Thanks for listening. My name is Dan Galadner, your host, along with Troy Eller English. Anyway, we are talking today on our podcast about communists in Detroit. Brian Pentagill has written Communists in Community, Activism in Detroit's Labor Movement, 1941 to 1956. Now, Brian earned his PhD in history from Michigan State University in 2009, and now is currently is professor of history at Dallas College in Texas. Hi, Ryan. How you doing? Thanks for being part of this podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. Excellent. So why don't we just dive right in and talk about your book? What was the purpose of writing this book and why did you use Detroit as a backdrop? So I grew up in the shadow of a Buick plant in Flint, Michigan. And I'd always heard stories of how the UAW was so central in lifting the color line in places like Flint. So as a grad student, I wanted to write then dissertation, now book, about the labor movement that was in the streets, uh, on the corners, and especially throughout the neighborhoods. The fact is, the CP was active in places like Detroit in the 1920s, especially with respect to labor unions that are trying to get themselves up and running off the ground. A good example, in my mind, what really puts the Communist Party on the map with respect to just average Detroiters is going to come in 1932. This is the depths of the Depression. This is that long, cold winter between Herbert Hoover and Franklin Roosevelt. And it's going to come um, not at City Hall. It's not going to come really even at the factory gates. It's going to come in the community. And of course, what I'm talking about is the Ford Hunger March, okay? Over the course of time, you get this organization, these organizations, I should say, called the Unemployed Councils. Now, they're not overtly communists. There are communists within them, but there's also socialists. There's people that you might think of union activists. It's very much a hodgepodge of activists, uh, most of whom are progressive. And what they do is they begin to call Henry Ford out. They draft a list of demands, which in addition to demanding jobs, uh, keep in mind that's what he was promising, demanding jobs, they also demand people like Henry Ford take more responsibility and be more proactive with respect to digging us out of this economic. Um, If you think back to the 1920s, and I don't mean 29, I'm talking about the, the good times, the golden age of capitalism, what comes to be known as the new capitalism, there's probably no better representation of welfare capitalism, of laissez-faire capitalism, and, and all of its benefits than Henry Ford. And when government gets out of the way, that's when the economy can really hit on all cylinders, no, no pun intended. But in any case, they're demanding that he take more proactive role in restoring the economy. They demand things like food and, and other necessities. They're also calling out city officials as well. And it's really important to to understand that this is taking place not in Detroit, but it's taking place in Dearborn, okay? Henry Ford's little, you know, municipal fiefdom. Many workers that were really important to his operation in Dearborn, they actually live in Detroit. And so here's Henry Ford reaping all the benefit of their labor, and he's not really doing much in the way of taxes or contributions to their welfare, because at the end of the day, they all take the train back to Detroit. And so this is not lost on these people. And when they march from Western Detroit into, they're trying to go to the headquarters to deliver their demands, they're met by first the police, which is more or less owned and operated by the Ford company. And then they're met by Henry Ford's secret police force, the Ford Service Department. And there are fatalities here. It it, it devolves into a riot. Initially, four people are killed, but later on, a fifth would die of his wounds. And what comes out of the Ford Hunger March, although the communists were not central in organizing the march itself, or at least not exclusively, they really took the bull by the horns with respect to what would come as a protest afterwards. Everything from bringing attention to the fact that these people that that died were shot in the back, they were fleeing the scene. It's not as if they were shot in the front. And also there's an African-American protester that had died a little bit later 
But there's a controversy involving, can we lay him to rest in Woodmere Cemetery? And it, it was Jim Crow at the time, and you couldn't do that. And the communists were really proactive in pushing that envelope. And that's something that you're going to see come later on when I, when I start talking about the activism in the 40s and the 50s as well. And so it's not as if 1943 rolls around, we've got a race riot in Detroit, and the communists are right there central trying to get some sort of a calming mechanism or integration going on. They have a long story history of being the really the only predominantly white organization that even paid attention to civil rights. So your book is excellent. I appreciate it. And I appreciate you taking the time to hang out with us. Again, I thank you for the invitation. Been looking forward to it. And I very much enjoyed this conversation. So thank you so much for having me. Tales from the Ruther Library is a production of the Walter P. Ruther Library and Archives of Labor and Urban Affairs at Wayne State University, coming to you from the heart of the Cultural Center of Detroit, Michigan. Thanks for listening. Say goodbye, Dan. Goodbye, Dan. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the SAG-AFTRA podcast. I'm Duncan Crabtree-Ireland, National Executive Director of SAG-AFTRA. In this ever-changing and expanding industry, performers are always looking for new opportunities, and many have turned to narrating audiobooks. So what are the opportunities, expectations, challenges, and requirements for those who want to break into this booming business? To get the inside scoop, we'll hear from an esteemed panel of successful audiobook narrators. They are Vikas Adam, Kyla Garcia, January Lavoie, and Emily Wu Zeller. We'll also hear from Dan Zitt, who is SVP of Content Production at Penguin Random House Audio. The moderator is Ron Butler, who is himself an audiobook narrator. Enjoy. We're here today to talk about the booming audiobook industry, and specifically the opportunities, the expectations, the challenges, and the requirements for those who want to break into this business. We'll also touch on the industry, how the industry is working to create more diversity, equity, and inclusion. If you had to tell somebody in our audience today the best steps they could take to pursue this work, what would be your advice? I'm going to jump in with the most obvious thing, but we talk about it all the time. The first thing I would do if you want to break into the audiobook industry is to start listening to audiobooks. You have a panel here of just extraordinary voices and people that have done some really tremendous work. Listening and understanding the medium is the first thing you can do as a voice actor when you want to enter into recording books. I would um, add to that in listening, listen for what you like and don't think that you have to become something else. I think a very common thing for new people in the industry that they want to imitate someone else's sound. I'm sure everybody here would say, you know, we got here because we developed and worked on our sound. We got to know our voice and the material we enjoyed and could support and bring to life. So just right off the bat, not to think that there's a sound. That's also part of our inclusivity, equity, and diversity work, that what you bring is important and unique, and that's what you should be invested in from the very beginning. Yeah, because everybody is a different kind of storyteller, right? And that storytelling that's unique to you is what the world wants to hear. They want to hear your uniqueness. Yes, because purely technical. Stick yourself in a chair, in a closet, or in a tight enclosed space with a piece of material that you like and read it out loud for about, I'd say 30 minutes, maybe even an hour, and see how you feel. See if you like it. See if you're tired, but also if you're tired, oh, but I can't wait to continue moving on and doing this again. Or on the flip side, if you're going, this was torture. And that's important to know because you're going to be in a booth for six, seven hours a day sometimes. Yeah, I think that's really great advice. Jumping off of what Vikas in January said with authenticity and practice, don't think about what everybody else is going to like, right? If you go to a, a barbecue, you're not like, let me make what everybody else likes. You make the thing you make. If you're good at making pie, you make that and you bring that. So when you're working on your first sample and practicing, choose content that you really love. So the first thing I ever worked on as my sample was the original Little Mermaid by Hans Christian Andersen, because it brings me joy. Mm -hmm. And there were character voices in there and it just brought me joy. So I'm like, that's the thing I do 
that's what I'm gonna share. So start with that. I really love what January said about not trying to be anyone else. What lights you up? What kind of stories bring you alive? Because that's what they wanna hear. Yeah, absolutely. When people think of audiobooks, sometimes they think of big characters and, oh, this book has 35 characters and I wanna be able to do all these different voices and it's really exciting. And it's one of the things I think actors love about performing audiobooks because you get to play all the characters. It's not just one character on stage or on screen. But really pay attention to the narrative. You know, that is the glue that holds together every story. And becoming a really good storyteller is the way to getting a really good demo together. Voices and things like that can be worked on when you're in studio with a director or whoever you're collaborating with. But really think about who you are as a storyteller and try to bring that to your demo. The intimacy of an audiobook is is much different than commercial voiceover or any other kind of medium. You know, you've have I've had actors come into the studio for the first time after doing a lot of commercial work and sit down and say, chapter one, and you're like, okay, maybe we should tone it back a little bit because <laughs> this initial scene is death. There's a death in this scene. Like it starts off someone leaving a funeral. So maybe like bring it back a little, think about what it is, the intimacy of what you're reading and put it in perspective before you start. How often are you talking in someone's ear? It is literally the most, in, like no one is right there next to you, right? So when it's handled with care, you can go for the ride and really listen. I'm so glad you brought that up because when I'm coaching, the metaphor that I use for people is to imagine that you're on a cross country trip, it's night, you're in the back seat of a car with one other person and you don't want the people in the front seat to hear the story you're telling that person. There's like an intimacy, a calm, but it's also like a long road that you're on and you, you've got the time, you've got the space, you've got their attention. And that's sort of the scale that I think of audiobook narration on. I love that. I think those things hold true for nonfiction as well as fiction. Absolutely. That's for sure. Nonfiction, sometimes the topic you could be reading about, whether it's economics or chemistry, you know, it's your job as a narrator to kind of have that listener hanging on every word, regardless of what it is you're reading. And, and I think when you're reading nonfiction sometimes and kind of communicating information as opposed to kind of storytelling, it's slightly different style, but I think at the end of the day, it's really is about feeling as if the person telling that story is the only one, you're the only one they're telling that story to. So I don't think it really deviates too far from what you're trying to accomplish with fiction. Thanks so much for listening to this edition of the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, a show where we cobble together highlights from the Labor Radio Podcast Network stash of over 130 shows. If you're interested in more labor-related podcasts, check out our website at laborradionetwork.org or use the hashtag laborradiopod on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. And follow us on Twitter and Instagram at laborradionet. Labor Radio Podcast Weekly was edited this week by Patrick Dixon and myself, produced by me under the guidance of Chris Garlock, and promoted on social media by Harold Phillips. This is it for Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, and have a safe, happy weekend. <laughs>